0: Formula for Success is brought to you
1: in association with F1 Manager 2023. Your legacy begins here.
2: Here we go, F1 Manager 2023 returns for a new season. Take your place on the pit wall and lead your officially licensed Formula 1 racing team to victory, driving every decision across new cars, circuits and challenges. From Monaco to Monza, Silverstone to Spa and Viva Las Vegas. Rewrite history with a new race replay putting you in the hot seat of the toughest situations. F1 Manager 2023, coming soon to PC, PlayStation and Xbox.
3: Hello and welcome to FFS. I'm David Coulthard, and with me is a man who I just oh, here we go cannot seem to get rid of. Oh uh, no, you need me. I... You need me in this oh, program. Well, I'm not so sure. But anyway, I've tried changing countries, changing studios, and he's still here.
1: It's Eddie Jordan. Ah, uh, there, David. You should change nationality. If you were Irish, you'd be a much nicer person. <laughs> I'm not sure about that. And yes, also, you are. Your dad and mum goes to Ireland all the time know, and you don't.
3: I go, I, I was in Dublin in January doing a running show car event. Yeah, with it was slagging me off
1: telling people that I didn't pay bills. Well, look, he told me you didn't pay your bill and he <laughs> came to me. And um, anyway, that bill's Go so on, let's keep going. Outstanding. Show on
3: the road. But look, it is actually a privilege to be with EJ because even if you don't have great factual stories, I know I can rely on you to make one up.
2: Well,
1: I've never been shy of making stuff up, and um, I presume that'll never change. Well, long may it continue. So we're back at Silverstone today, recording at the fantastic Silverstone
3: Museum. Well worth a visit if you're ever at the track or in the area. And there are some bits of Jordan memorabilia knocking around here. And there's even a couple of my old cars in here, so it's all good stuff. Um, I've actually got a wee museum up in Scotland.
1: Yeah, tell us about it. Is this adoration? Do people adore you and sort of doorstop you when you get close to the place? I mean, well, come and tell well, us, what is it like having a museum absolutely specifically for you well, and unlike, you alone?
3: Unlike yourself, where you sold everything you could, my my father had a vision um, that to keep a hold of all my bits and pieces. So we've got my first helmet and suit, my first cart, um, all my karting trophies, my uh, last kart, my Formula Ford, to Lotus, Formula 3, Formula 3000, uh, Williams 1995, McLaren 96, all my Red Bulls and a uh, Mercedes DTM car, which I drove at the end of my career. Not very quickly, it has to be said, but I had a lot of fun and various other bits and in- Bobs that you get added, you know, you get given over the years. You know, I'm sure you've got lederhosen that we were presented when we first went to the Austrian I Grand have Prix. Those, by the way, yeah, they're, they're
1: not car memorabilia.
3: Yeah, well, but, but it was gifts from around, and it used to be open to the public, and it was run by my sister, and she she had a little uh, diner there called the Pit Stop Diner, and uh, she would give out. She was very clever. She was a clever lady, my sister. Much more clever than you, well, definitely, because she used to offer free champagne if I won a Grand Prix. If anyone had the full set lunch knowing fine well that the chances of me winning a Grand Prix
1: were quite slim. Well, and uh, I, there was a stage that you actually did win a lot of Grand Prix. I won a few.
3: I won a few in the,
1: in the don't 90s. Don't yourself down. Normally you're pumping yourself up, and I'm getting <laughs> nervous when you go on with this kind of situation. Well, look, I've kept everything. What about you? Uh,
3: have you kept any of the old Jordan bits and pieces? Uh, and what, if, if
1: out of all of that, is your most prized position? Well, first of all, the answer is no. I don't have any... Uh, possessions from all of the time. What is remarkable that I spend more money now on eBay buying stuff Back that I'd sold at probably 50 times the price. <laughs> <All So right. laughs> I recently bought back some uh, Buzzing Hornets uh, mugs that I wanted to give away to somebody, and I did a couple of towels. And then I don't know, the, the motorhome when I stayed in Silverstone uh, for the Grand Prix, uh, Paul Rees had obviously a lot of uh, pictures made up. So when I went in to stay in the motorhome with him for the weekend, he had everything Jordan, B&H Jordan. I was really, really impressed. That's it was fantastic. Cool. So there's a lot of memorabilia out there and there is a lot of ability to be able to get it on eBay, which is a fairly new system. That wasn't the there when I was a young boy.
3: are available, aren't they? You, you don't have to just be on eBay. You know, we can't just be promoting one platform. Are you are you on the take from eBay? Uh, is there a second platform? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I, just, Where I just thought I had to say that. Anyway, right. So if you're not really then, if you don't really have a big collection, and at the Silverstone Museum, the beautiful Jordan 191 is, is in the museum and... I heard a little story actually, when I was at the British Grand Prix, that apparently Gary Anderson and the team, you used fluid dynamics for that vehicle rather than pure aerodynamics. There's, there's a facility somewhere in the south coast, which, and is that probably why it looks so sort of shark-like or dolphin-like?
1: Well, f- um, I'm not sure. Technically I, I, I'm open to some ridicule here. But I understand that the air and water operates in exactly the same way. You're right. And everybody goes to the wind tunnel. And everyone over the wind tunnel at, at that stage in the early, in the 90s, in 1990. It uh, was charging a fortune or you couldn't get in and we didn't have enough money. Um, but I had a deal but through sailing. I had a deal with a guy in Southampton University and uh, I realized that I could buy or get some really cheap time in the water life. so instead of the, um, the aerodynamic situation that you had here so exactly using the same philosophy that boats and racing boats and people like Ben Ainsley and those guys would be using to get the best out of their sailboats for the America's Cup I employed our car and we did our car instead of on a rolling road we did it in a water tunnel and that's how that car was designed that's true so what celebrity or or personality story do you have for this week this is somebody who's in our business so to speak but was also in the business of sport Uh, and quite remarkable he always says that he he was the um, gold medal winner at the olympics at, at the bell because in that famous race between Steve Ovette and, and Seb Coe, uh, he was the guy who led at the bell. His name is David Warren. Yeah, and, David's uh, you, Yeah, exactly. And you remember him, he was in Formula 1, and with, with you, obviously, at Williams. Uh, but then now, more especially, he, he runs Formula E. And, and actually, I was very happy to give back to him because I absolutely helped to get that Grand Prix in Cape Town for Formula E, which was a massive success. Rolling that on... Um, I met David through Cannon, I think, brought him into Formula 1. And I remember winning the championship with Johnny Herbert in uh, 1987 in in Formula 3. And that was a big moment. So the following year he was a rookie in Formula 3000 it was his first race ever in 3000 and we used a Reynard car it was their first race in 3000 so there was a lot of new thing going and, and and you you will remember from 3000 a lot of it was historic and the people who won in the past always seemed to come to the top but this was unusual we wound up at the first race in Jerez absolutely no sponsor Adrian Reynard gave me the car Alex Hawkridge which was at the time which was Tolman they gave me the engine so I had a a bit of equipment that was coming for free, um, but I had to run the car. Um, There was no money to run the car. We were on pole position uh, in Jerez for our first ever race. So I said, Jesus, where am I going to get the money to pay for all this? So I thought about Dave uh, Dave Warren. And David Warren had taken up a job at Camel. Camel had decided to sponsor Lotus. They were having a shocking time. It was crap. And uh, so I ring Dave Warren and I said to him, look, David, I have a little proposal for you. We're doing this race tomorrow. We're on pole position. I don't want any money for it, but I want to put camel all over the car. And uh, if we win the race, which all the TV and the various different aspects of the benefits of that, uh, I want to be able to sit with you people next week and trash out something that might resemble or look like a deal. And David came back to me and he said, I haven't been able to speak to anyone, but I'll take it upon myself and I'll say Yes. So we put camel on the car. How brave was that? Yeah, I know. That's we incredible. put camel all over the car. Johnny Herbert went out. Was an absolute genius. Won the race easy. I remember. Really, I got upset with Adrian Reynard because Adrian will probably tell you if we ever have him in a future podcast. He insisted that I bought new tires for the car. I didn't even want to put the new tires on the car at all. That was expensive. <laughs> but anyway, we did, and we won the race. And the rest is history. Went back on the Wednesday, saw the the chief executive of the whole group, a guy called Len Pullen. He absolutely loved it because David had made this decision. And they'd seen the press and many people had talked. And actually then rolled it on the following year. It was the emergence of Jean Alessi. So Camel, France went crazy. They absolutely loved this idea. So I owe a lot to David. David Warren was great because he was the one who took the risk to do it. And very often, you know, when people don't have the authority, they would say, oh, I can't really make a decision. So this is a Friday night, and he made a decision. Do you think, pr- yeah, sorry, E.J., to cut across you there, but do you think that
3: was of a time? Do you think that people, executives in those sorts of positions, would, be, would have the authority to to go, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm going to go, I'm going to take a punt on this,
1: or, or how, what's your experience on how the,
3: the business world has well, changed? Well, I think
1: there was a couple of issues here. One, the Lotus thing was very unhappy. It just wasn't working. And then, um, on top of that, Camel were looking for something fresh and new, even though it was Formula 3000 and wasn't Formula 1. And, and Dave Warren must have known, he had a relationship with his absolute governor, the boss, and he must have known that he had a certain amount of leeway, because if you didn't have that leeway, you wouldn't make that decision. So, I think there were are things behind the scenes that we or I was not aware of uh, and to answer your question do I think Chief I think people still uh, have um, uh, ideas but and I think that people have the initiative to go out and find new areas and to do things probably less than they had before because I think it's much more controlled I think corporate governance does not allow that to happen like it does yeah. before So it probably
3: stifles a bit of creativity but what, what I love about that story is Olympian to you know, a business leader in in marketing and, and and been able to position brands within the sport. There's many examples, and and you mentioned Seb Co. there as the man that, yeah. the, that won that gold medal. And Seb is someone that we see in, in, in Monaco and, and around various events, and he's he's risen, I think it's Lord Co actually, to give him his full title.
1: For a very long time. Um, Lord Coe. So
3: there's a there's a absolute correlation between the discipline that's required
1: in elite sport and then that leading to other success beyond. I think it's about discipline. It's about when people realise how tough sport is and what they need to do to achieve greatness, um, very often that transfers into the next part of their life. So uh, well done to them. And, and, and David has been in motor racing probably a lot not longer than he has been in athletics. And I, I know him in a different capacity. Not, I've just told you about it, Formula E, but he was the one who got me into sailing. Um, he brought me to Oyster and I went around the world. I did a, a circumnavigated the race because he was a racer. He raced dragons all over Ireland and all over Europe. So, you know, he was a great sportsman in other areas too. Uh, and for him to make the final uh, of the uh, Moscow Olympics, this guy's a real champion and a real great friend. I'm delighted to have him on the show.
0: Thank you very much for inviting me to say a few words on your podcast. It got me reminiscing really. Unlike you, Eddie, I didn't come from a world of motorsport, I came from the world of athletics. But once my athletics career had ended, I joined Canon in their sports sponsorship department. And you know, they sponsored athletics, tennis, football. And then in 1986, they became a sponsor of the Williams Formula One team. Um, and this was my introduction to motorsport. And the Williams team was a very exciting place to be because they were just really beginning to sort of get up to speed. So, And uh, they had drivers like Keke Rosberg, Nigel Mansell, uh, Riccardo Patrese. So this was my introduction and from Canon I joined R.J. Reynolds tobacco, Camel Cigarettes and that is where I had the pleasure of first meeting or well, at least hearing from you. The point of the story is I had sort of first-hand experience of dealing with the Benetton team, with the Williams team and with yourselves. And the Jordan team was very different; It had a different sort of vibe about it. It was a bit sort of rock and rolly um you know, just small things like you know I think you were the first team that had sort of music sort of blaring out from the garage you You shook things up a bit, but I think it was in a good way um Eddie, you know my as I said, my career in motorsport has been exciting, but it's undoubtedly been enriched by knowing you and our ongoing friendship and i I look forward to many, many more adventures probably in the mountains um, above Zermatt. I'm sure we'll speak soon. Thanks very much.
3: Right, I have to take a breath here because I, I, I know what's coming. I know what's coming because we've made it this far without mentioning it. It's the Belgian Grand Prix at Spa this week, which was a very happy hunting ground for Jordan. We know that. Everybody knows yeah. that. Uh, you got a second place with Fisichella in 1997. You got a third with Frensen in 1999. But it was really, that was overshadowed by the fact that I won that race. You know who won the race in '99? Well, you told me, me you were going to win
1: the one in 88, <laughs> but uh, you decided to take Schumacher out. Well, David, you haven't said, you've forgotten. We were on pole position with Rubens Barrichello. Do you remember we... yes. You did so a fantastic I think job. your,
3: your little... Um, okay, you had Paul, but you didn't win, the, you didn't get a, a notable finish on that particular race. But yeah, you brilliantly sent your guys to the end of the pit lane uh, and as we did the, the out lap for qualifying it started to rain so literally you got one lap and whoever crossed the line first Absolutely. was on pole but that was that was good um, creative thinking from the Jordan strategist team I'm sure you're going to claim it was you that said get in the car percent there you go the, not, not 100% ladies and gentlemen 150% well, actually look, are we going to
1: talk about Spa for a second? we're, we're talking about
3: Spa yes, because and I was going to mention 1988 when Jordan Jordan stood loud and proud on the top of the two steps of the podium, and I remember the camera cutting to you, and it was like you were leaping and jumping and giggling as you ran towards
1: the podium. Sure. I, anyway, uh, I was. Uh, that was a very, well. What was it about Spa and the Jordan well, team? you know, it was a funny thing about that particular race. Don't ask me why, but I always had a good premonition about Spa. We had won the Formula 3 championship there with Johnny Herbert. We won the J- Formula 3000 championship uh, series there with Jean Alessi. It was a magic place. So I decided that I would hire a couple of bosses. And I would boss every single member of the staff and their a flight
3: would have been more comfortable.
1: It would have been a lot more expensive. Anyway, <laughs> because I didn't want, if I could put them on the bus, I could have them sleeping on the bus so I didn't have to pay for a hotel. Oh, my so God. I, I, I you really them there. looked after the I staff. I bust them there. I did a deal with the circuit for the very top corner where you come around the hairpin, and everyone was there. So that was nice. So our first ever win, all the staff were there. I feel really good about Spa because it was a magic place for me. As I said, pole position, first pole, our first ever win, our first 1-2. Every Jordan car from the factory across the road at Silverstone always seemed to go really well at Spa. Don't ask me why, I've no idea.
3: Okay, that's fair enough. So uh, there's obviously an affinity between Spa and uh, the Jordan racing team. What is your favourite memory? You mentioned the Formula 3, you mentioned the Formula 3000. Was it the Formula One because that was the pinnacle of, of where you took the race team
1: or was, was it those early building championships? I know it sounds a little bit crass, but I actually probably felt more at ease and less stressful uh, in the junior formulas, and I absolutely loved what Johnny Herbert did for us, John Alessi, and they were magic moments, because you could still enjoy life to a degree, whereas Formula One, as you were very well known, is a very big high-pressure business, and um, so you're being pulled here, there, and everywhere. So I probably enjoyed the junior I'm saying that now, but in reality had I not done Formula One, we probably would, I wouldn't be sitting here with you. So Formula One has, of course, a huge knock-on effect that uh, people know who you are people watch it it's on TV da 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 so the 1-2 you know there were some parts of that race with, with, with Ralph where I had to tell him that he wasn't able to even though um, Ralph was absolutely a lot quicker than Damon at that part of the race but I had to see where the third guy which was Alessi and the Ferrari they were further back and they weren't going to catch us so I knew I couldn't afford the risk that we had and we took in Argentina the previous year where genre where uh, uh, Ralph and um, uh, Fisichella ran into each other when we looked like winning one and two there, and that really upset me. So you gave a team order. You said I was absolutely position. full on team yeah. orders, and I think you know it's it's there for everyone to hear or to see. It was kind of <laughs> brutal, but that's the way you have to be. Yeah, I've had team orders in, in my career, and. At the end of the day, the, there
3: is, you, you have a contract with the team. And I don't know whether your drivers were bringing finance to get the seat or whether they were just uh, purely paid to drive, but there is always a line in a contract that says you must accept all reasonable instructions from the team principal. Absolutely.
1: But so you talk about money. So uh, Ralph Schumacher... He brought S. Oliver, which was an amazing, uh, first of the major German sponsors. So he was paying, but Benson and Hedges were paying. I wouldn't pay Damon. It was just went against the grain. I couldn't possibly see myself paying Damon Hill. And uh, <laughs> not because I was a lovely guy, but an the, the amazing guy. But I insisted, and I got Benson and Hedges to pay him directly, and that's what, how that happened. So indirectly, Damon was a paid driver. Benson and Hedges naturally would have preferred, well, to be fair to Damon, he had led most of the race after you... And Michael had your little coming together. But um, so it, it was a very strange race because Irvine destroyed the whole grid, wasn't it? I mean, it was the most amazing race. Yeah, Biggest crash lap. ever yeah, in, huge in
3: Formula One. Absolutely, huge first. I actually lost control on the uh, the rain gutter coming out of La Source and spun in and hit the concrete uh, pit lane for the support race. Came back across in front of the, the pack and then everybody just cannonballed in. But because there was so much spray... I think I might have accidentally blamed Eddie. I, I think I said I got touched from behind, which I'm not sure I did or I didn't. But um, anyway... Uh,
1: have you told him this? I, to, yeah, I, I told the whole world. He <laughs> hit me. <laughs> um, right, so that was... David, an, i just got to ask you a question about that because yeah. I think it's important. Things moved on dramatically since then. That race would have been an absolute disaster had it not been for spare cars. Yeah. What's, What's your bet? view on spare cars? I, I loved that when
3: we had spare cars. The, the reality is every Grand Prix team has a spare car, but it's in a box and you've got to build it. You're not allowed to have a completely built third car Correct. at a Grand Prix track, but they have uh, the parts to make another car. But they couldn't do what they did in the Spa. If there's a big crash at the first corner in any any given Grand Prix... If 10 cars are are destroyed, that's it, then you have a 10-car race, which thankfully hasn't really been the case, but it it, it wouldn't be beyond the realms of possibility. The intense world of Formula One comes alive for a new season in F1 Manager 2023. Your legacy begins here. Just jumping back into Spa, that victory, the 1-2, what was the impact uh, and the reaction to you winning your fir- your first Grand Prix. Presumably, there was monetary benefit. Did did
1: that take away all of your financial woes, no. or did it just money wise? Honestly, that was never the consideration. I think what it did was um, remarkable. We were in the making a TV program for ITV. And they wanted to talk about this rookie team, and and they chose Jordan and. Um, Three quarters ways through the season, or before Spa, they decided to stop it because there wasn't enough interest and they didn't see the progression being made. Um, And because the first half was a disaster, I think Ralph finished sixth at Silverstone, and that was the kickstart, and then it took off from there. But it's funny when we finished first and second, the next day <laughs> in fact before that, when I got home at midnight that night, the TV camera was outside the door, so they got so it's amazing, success breeds success. And success, I' say that to everybody, whether you're a student or at school or a kid or a child. Just keep try and make sure that there is an element of success in your life, because on that you can build a foundation, and that foundation is so important in future life to make sure that you get the best that you can for your life and your family. Once again, EJ, you've uh, come out with some wise words oh, that I, I success, don't have. But isn't success, it breeds success, doesn't it? I mean, because you have it inside you, you know what it feels like. And I never thought, I really didn't think. Oh, no, no, that's not true. I, I, I always believed I could win a Grand Prix. Um, but By the I didn't, way, but
3: I assume anything you're saying is not true,
1: so you don't need I to say don't it's don't not true. I just don't know how... Because when you had the great teams, you know, you had the, the, the Hondas and the BMWs and the Ferraris and the Mercedes, and the, you just say, how am I ever going to beat these people? How smart them. And when you do, you say, wow, that feels so amazing. It's just fantastic. And I think that gives you just that inner strength to be able to say, "I think <laughs> everything I fought for, I think I have now feel is justified.
3: Yeah, I think it comes down to belief. I think that um, if, if I liken it uh, to my driving journey, the first time I drove a Grand Prix car there at uh, Silverstone in uh, 1990, the, it was the realization that it was just a car. Because you, you imagine it's something like a, you know, some sort of magical spaceship, but it's just a car. It's a fast car. But the moment you go, okay, that's achievable. It completely changes your mindset, Absolutely. so it's a little bit like winning. It then becomes something that you're not fearful of, or and you want to you yeah. want to taste it again, oh, isn't it's it? Wonderful. It's like
1: it's wonderful. It's like getting a needle out of the arm, you know. I have no idea what you're talking about. Well, I mean, you know, I, I neither do I. But people often say, you know, "Don't <laughs> well, do that." Don't, most don't, of the time, don't get too high on your own supply. So <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, let us not get too high on our own supply. But a little message to our listeners, and that is: always believe, but never believe less than 100% because it's that little tiny margin that will cripple you. 100% belief or nothing. EJ, at this point, I'm going to take a
3: slight change of uh, really? of tack. Yeah, because um, sadly, it's it's only been a few weeks since a young Dutch driver sadly lost his life, Delano van Toff. Um, he died uh, yeah. On a crash at span. I is, read about that. I know example. it's it's always always really tough uh, within a tight knit community 18? like motorsport. Absolutely, young man. Oh my god! Following his dream, and a very similar uh, incident to that of uh, Antoine Hubert, a yeah. Formula Two driver who lost his life a few years ago. In the aftermath of that, Lance Stroll has made a point about the safety of that part of the track. So it's on the Kemmel Street. it's after a Rouge, and it was some way beyond Eau Rouge. He'd gone onto the grass, spun in front of the field, and then in a wet condition, into the spray, another car struck the side of his, his race car. Um, so Lance is basically calling for the track to be changed there. I'll, I, if you want me to go first and tell you where my yeah. mind's at on this, and then I'd like to understand where your mind is. Um, wet conditions you can lose control of the car that at any time. point silverstone you've got the kink onto the hangar street you could lose control there and it has happened and you could find yourself in front of uh, a group of cars i actually I, I had a broken leg in the support race in Spa, 1990 going down the hill to poo corner first lap got touched hit the wall came back in front of the field and then kenny brack a swedish driver mm-hmm. um was the guy that I had contact with and then somebody else ran into the side of my car and it broke my leg. So it, it is sadly a reminder that motor racing is dangerous. Therefore, I, I raced at Spa, you raced at Spa in the aftermath of 94, the tragic loss of uh, Roland Ratzenberger and Ayrton Senna, and we put a chicane at the bottom of Rouge as a knee-jerk reaction to basically slowing down any fast corners. And we all wanted to go back to the thrill of driving au Rouge. And, and, and it is inc- it's incredible to drive a, a race car at high speed through that corner. So I personally don't think we should be changing corners that comply with the FIA standards for runoff. What happens on the racetrack can always happen on the racetrack, irrespective of whether it's Spa, whether it's Silverstone, whether it's Monte Carlo. If you're in the middle of a racetrack stopped, and another car doesn't manage to slow down, you, you're going to have a, a major incident. So I don't think we should be knee-jerk changing circuits, even uh, you know, even through another tragedy of a, a loss of life.
1: I agree with you 100%. I did not like, even as much as I loved Ayrton Senna and Roland, but what Max did at the following race that was all knee-jerk uh, Max Mosley,
3: who was the president of the FIA. Hey, Max right.
1: Mosley was the president. And he came, I think it was Hockenheim, the next race and the race. was a, It was never the same because there was too many things I implemented. Was,
3: yeah, sorry, Eddie. The race after was Monaco and Williams only entered one car. And then the first, let's say, proper race circuit after Monaco was Barcelona.
1: And there was a number of Num- a number changes. Of changes. Yeah. And honestly, it wasn't the same. What happened... At Imola, that terrible tragic weekend hasn't been uh, repeated, thankfully. Um, so, yes, we can learn a lot. But, you know, I'm concerned. You're talking about runoffs, and you're talking about. I've never seen at the moment cars being so reliable and so safe as they are currently in Formula One. So, we've got to be really careful that we just, you know, um, fair play for Lance to. to, to bring this point up at least he's caring about other people in a sport where he came up in a sport and he has survived a lot but the fact is please don't start messing around with circuits i have an issue here on that while we talk about circuits and that is you know all this business of track limits and stuff which we we hear and we talk about Formula One is the pinnacle of the sport. And what's happening with a lot of these tracks is no disrespect to MotoGP because I adore it. And Mick Doohan was on and he's such a revelation. I adore everything that they do. But what we have is these big long runoffs, which are Tower Macadam, which they never used to be. They used to be grass and they used to be uh, pebbles and stuff. And I'm, so the track had its own definition. And at the moment, Drivers are taking advantage, going over the white line, getting... Paid, and no one. Oh, then the penalties are so boring. Awesome. Uh, what is going on, David? Uh, it's embarrassing. But uh,
3: Austria was the, the case where they had hundreds, hundreds of uh, track limit penalties, and then the results are being amended after everyone's left the circuit. That's an embarrassment. Formula One and FIA... And the drivers, we can all do better than that. And and uh, I agree. Makes us look like idiots. Yeah, to be very yeah, fair. Yeah, yeah. We're, With twelve hundred. Well, you know, twelve hundred. Uh, I'm sorry uh, you uh, feel. That, I'm sorry you feel that you you think people think you're an idiot. I I, I, I never felt that myself. <laughs> uh, but. you do so. Right, EJ, let's take some listeners' questions, and we've got a couple here. First from Mark Jackson. Hi DC and EJ. My question is for Eddie. Eddie, a few years ago I remember you saying you cannot run a business from behind a desk. Do you still believe this to be the case? And what is your view of the current working from home, hybrid working landscape which is now in many sectors? That's a good one actually because a lot of companies are struggling to get people to want to come back in the office because you know of course working from home where you can be, you know, answering an email as you head down to the supermarket. It gives a different flexibility Have a for of coffee, life. You
1: get busy with the girlfriend or whatever you <laughs> do.
3: Absolutely, EJ. Whatever, whatever floats your boat, son.
1: <laughs> oh, I was only thinking like what you think. Anyway, um, good question. Really, um, you couldn't I'm, run a racing team. I'm, people working from home? Are You crazy? So, so it's industry specific. But I specific. needed to embrace people. I, I, my I, my philosophy on, on work ethic is is cajoling and helping and encouraging and and, and making sure that people could feel the vibe because people feed off other people. And so I'm trying to figure out, how do you feed off somebody when you're at home? It doesn't happen. You know, the encouragement of the senior people or the senior management... we will say at Jordan at the time. And I'm talking about lots of different characters and people. Obviously, we talked about Gary Anderson. But, you know, all his engineering people fed from him. They all came to him. They adored him. They wanted that inspiration that he could give them and ideas. And and that's what I think we're missing. There's a little bit of a a loophole or there's actually a a void somewhere there that I think motor racing couldn't operate like that. To answer the question that he first started... People used to say to me, oh, he's not in today, or he's away, or he's doing this, or he's And I'd always say, you tell me, because this is Ron Dennis. He said, oh, you're playing golf, and you're, you're off skiing, or you're off doing that. So Ron used to give me a lot of stick. And I used to always challenge him, and I said, Ron, you're in your office every day. You're not a commercial guy. You're a technical guy. That's slightly different. But I want to know is I have never in my entire life ever found a sponsor sitting behind my desk, ever. And so that's my challenge out there. If anyone has, please tell me, because that's not the way. I'm a networker. I need to talk to you. I need to go to the pub. I need to tell you why my car is going to be better than yours. I want to tell you how I can make that advertising on that car burst your business into life that you've never been able to witness or to see before or you change that colour from white to yellow and you have DHL and you have a new brand and you've that's what happens you need time to think about things like that and to do that you're not going to do it behind an office when every goddamn tosser in the joint is coming in to tell you (laughs) why you should be have more spanners in here and more I don't want to know about spanners I don't know I want to know about funds and commercial activity.
3: Yeah, okay. So I think the answer to that is basically, it depends on your role. If you're an author, clearly working from home is probably beneficial, but there's certain industries, the creative world, you, you need to be a, in a creative space. And, and cold face. I, 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 as a team, I used to insist that my, whoever was my engineer, and I had some brilliant race engineers over the years, whoever it was back in the days when we had testing, they did the testing with me as well. Whereas uh, some teams had race engineers and test engineers. But I wanted my race engineer to be there because if I'm there, clearly it's possible. So therefore, if they're committed to being my race engineer, they should be at the test with me. And you build up a relationship. You build up a rapport. You build up a sixth sense. You know, that some of the great partnerships. Look at Max and GP, his engineer. He's the one guy that can kind of control Max when he gets a bit excited on the radio.
1: You know, just And that's not particularly easy sometimes. Max, Max is somebody who doesn't yeah. need control.
3: And, and he's able to do that because they built a relationship and they built a relationship based on understanding each other and being in front of each other. So, yep, yeah, I'm all for people being, being in the office. Right, here's a nice one from Hatman. And it's uh, DC and EJ, what is your fondest memory of each other? Oh, this is going to be awkward.
1: No, my no, no. My fondest I've, memory I've, of you hasn't been hasn't been formed yet. It's funny, you've t- you've stolen my story. That's What's, exactly what I was gonna say. No, oh, come on. I'm not fond of you. I don't even like you. Well I've never I, didn't like you. Because well, that's why I never had you in the car. Because I thought you, you feelings, you, you, I thought mutual. you were up yourself. I thought you were Jack the lad, you had all these wonderful, gorgeous girlfriends, and I'm saying no, that's not I happening. don't want him in the car. I considered and always do still consider you to be a nice, relatively soft person, because I had a conversation with Damon Hill, and Damon Hill recently said to me, I said to him, tell me tell me really what was d c like and he said he was an amazingly fast because I was asking him about those questions, and he said he really was quick, and I said, really? he said, when he was in front of me i I honestly never thought that he uh, I could catch him but Five laps later, he'd dump it in the wall. <laughs> 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 And so the the philosophy that Damon had, Damon was one of those, you know, he regularly just got it going together and he won a world championship and he's turned out to be one of my really great friends. And um, so I admire everything. And a similar thing happened at Jordan. He was not really as quick as Ralph Schumacher and he certainly wasn't today when he won that race. But he has that ability just to get it over the line at the time. And he was hugely complimentary to you. And... I'm saying to you is, that uh, do you actually believe you could have been? You know, you were right there all the time. You were in the right car. Why did you not become world champion? Well, I think it was
3: as simple that, um, a couple of things. One, I was a late transitioner to left foot braking. And when the writing was on the wall, when Mike and I were teammates at McLaren, that right foot braking compromised your ability to, in uh, medium speed corners, handle the transition from throttle to brake. You know, there's a lot of corners where you, you don't need to lift off completely, but you do need to slow the car down a little bit. And obviously, if you're right foot braking, you have to remove the throttle completely to apply pressure and then go back. So um, that kind of held me back a little bit. Once I did learn and and get comfortable with left foot braking I think my strongest year really was that sort of 2000 you know I was in, in the, the hunt with the world championship with Michael finished second or was it 2001 but anyway I'm, I'm, I'm doing an EJ here that I'm, I can't quite get the get the year hey, just catching up it is, in, is indeed um, but uh, yeah I, look there's guys who've won one Grand Prix in a season and they've won the world championship so you know I managed to do more than that would it have been nice? Of course it would. But do I think I deserve, based on my 15 years, to be in the same category as what I consider the world champions? And that's not the guys that might have won it once. And no disrespect, some of them have been brilliant. But there's also been some that have won it once that have, have, were just good racing drivers. I love the fact that in any given sport, whether it's football or tennis, that there's headline guys, men and women, who stand out because you go wow? How did they do that? And I didn't have that wow. How did you do that? Um, so therefore, no, I don't. I, I'm entirely comfortable with the career I had, and that's what still draws me to Formula One today. And yeah, me too. And when, when you know when you see Lewis, some of his races, you go, that's unbelievable. When I see these standout performances, that is just remarkable, and
1: and that's what still draws me to the sport. David. Um You talk about left foot braking, which became the norm. Actually, your teammate, I think, Hackenham, was probably the first to do it and because he was a Finn, and they kind of did that with the rally. But what I find, and maybe if you could outline to the people um, how much throttle, because when you talk about left foot braking, you didn't just use your left foot to have your foot on the brake, but when you had your foot on the brake, left foot, you also had your foot... Uh, buried in the throttle so in other words you were wiping speed you were balancing the car into a perfect position so where do you have the line so you must have even though you say you don't have great beat or you don't have tempo in your body but you must have had a very good reflection in terms of how much throttle were you applying at the time compared to the amount of brakes? Yeah, it depends on the speed of the corner is the answer to that. If
3: it's a lower speed corner, you've got less downforce. The downforce in Formula One is the square of the speed. So you really want to be going through faster corners because it gives you the opportunity to to totally nail um, the, the, the level of grip you have. So if it's a medium, high medium speed corner, you can do more of an overlap of the throttle and brake you don't want to be doing it too much because, of course, you're putting fuel in, which means you then have to carry more fuel. So you're trying to make sure you're driving efficiently as well. Um, and then some fast corners, you just need a little dab of the brake with, with 100% throttle just to sort of get the nose down. And so it is, yeah, You a car is an extension of your body. Sure. And it's a little bit like skiing. You, you know whether you're, you're on the front of the ski or the back of the ski, you know, you know depending on the speed of the, the corner. So anyone who skis, then they'll know what that feeling's like. And it's a beautiful thing. When you dance a car through a racetrack, a Grand Prix car is drifting through the corner. You don't visibly see it as such. You know, it's not quite like a rally car with a sideways, but it has to be drifting ever so slightly because you're at the edge of adhesion and you're sliding across the top of the tarmac using all of the road towards the exit. Um, So it's a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful feeling. And some drivers do it better than others. Well, EJ, I think it is time for us to uh, thank our listeners for sending in those questions. Absolutely. And to remind them... Keep them them, coming. Keep them coming. And if you want to get in touch with the show, you can email ffs at whisper.tv or on social media at F1 for success. Now, F1 will be taking the summer break after spa, but no such luck for you and I, EJ. Ah. We'll be back again, same time, same place, with another episode of FFS.
2: F1 Manager 2023 returns for a new season. Take your place on the pit wall and lead your officially licensed Formula 1 racing team to victory, driving every decision across new cars, circuits and challenges. From Monaco to Monza, Silverstone to Spa and Viva Las Vegas. Rewrite history with a new race replay putting you in the hot seat of the toughest situations. F1 Manager 2023, coming soon to PC, PlayStation and Xbox.